0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon.
1: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I invite you to turn there with me. Again, Ruth 3. 1 through 13. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight in in the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All of this that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, and if he will redeem you good, let him do so, but if if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Ruth 3, 1-13. through 13.
0: All right, let's get into it with uh, prayer. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you so much for uh, for the holy privilege of worship. Thank you for gathering us here today. We are glad to be your people and to be in fellowship with each other. And we are very glad to have your word in front of us. And we pray that as we study this uh, first part of this chapter together, that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would work through me and all my human frailty and shortcomings to speak to our hearts, to uh, help us understand and to bring words of encouragement to, to us as we seek to live for Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, imagine you get up one morning, you open your front door, you look out the window, and you see outside the ground is covered with soybeans. And I don't mean the nice green plants like we see in fields around here, beautiful fields. I mean actual soybeans, little white beans all over the the ground and the cars and whatever else happened to be out in your front yard. Uh, That's actually what happened about a year and a half ago in a, a town in Ontario, up in Canada, Hamilton, Ontario, uh, it was in December, and they uh, usually expect to see snow when they look out their windows that time of year, but uh, on that particular day, people looked out their windows, and they saw their yards covered with little white uh, husks. It wasn't the whole bean. It was little husks from, from soybeans. Uh, that's what they saw, soybeans all over their yards. Uh, they solved the mystery pretty quickly. Apparently, there's a, a processing plant in their community. It uh, processes soybeans into like oil. is one of the things they do, soybean oil. And uh, they, they announced, they found out through a series of phone calls that that night there had been an, uh, an inadvertent discharge. Uh, that was the term the company used, an inadvertent discharge of, uh, of waste. So in the process of making soybean, soybean oil, soybean oil uh, they, they uh, stripped the husks. And usually, I don't know where they usually go, but for whatever reason, that day they went out the smokestacks and up into the air and settled down all over people's cars and yards and all the rest of it. And so it looked like it had rained or snowed soybeans overnight. Uh, I like that little story because it's a nice reminder that life is full of surprises. Uh, And we have a good example of that, something very surprising in Ruth chapter 3. The Lord himself surprises us. As we meditate on this, you'll see what I mean. The Lord surprises us in the way he provides for Ruth in this chapter. Uh, we are coming back to Ruth. We've been away from it for a few weeks and uh, just had some different uh, missionaries and different other things going on. Uh, but we're coming back to Ruth this morning. Uh, so far we've covered half the book, so we covered chapters one and two. Uh, so we're halfway through the book. Uh, we've met the main characters at this point. Uh, there are really three main characters in Ruth. Uh, just a review. Uh, the first one is a woman named Naomi. Uh, Naomi is an older woman, and uh, so she's, she's actually a widow. Her husband has died. We don't know her actual age, but she's clearly older. Uh, her husband has died, and actually both of her sons have died as well. So she has, uh, she has no sons or a husband. Uh, she's all alone in the world except for one person. She has this daughter-in-law who has stayed with her, and that woman's name is Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a, a Moabite. She's the second main character, the, the namesake of the book. Uh, she's, uh, she's a Moabite, which means she's not Jewish. The other characters in the book are Jewish. She's not. She's a, she's a foreigner from a Jewish perspective. She's a Moabite. Uh, she's also a widow because she was married to one of Naomi's two sons, and that son had died. So they have this in common. Ruth and Naomi are in the same position. They're different ages. Ruth is much younger, but they're both, uh, they're both widows. And so they're both alone. They're both alone in the world except for each other, and you, you could make the case Ruth is even more alone because her family of origin is back in Moab. Uh, Naomi at least has some extended family in Bethlehem, which they've come back to. So they're both alone. All of that's established for us in chapter one. Uh, When they get back to Bethlehem, and that's kind of, there's a a journey in this book that happens. They journey from Moab, go west and up to go to Bethlehem. They move back to Israel. When they get to Bethlehem at the beginning of chapter two, they have two big problems. These women have two big problems. The first is a short term problem they need food. They've, They've got nothing, they've brought nothing with them but the packs on their backs. And so they need food. And chapter 2, a lot of chapter 2 is about how the Lord provides that short-term need. He takes care of them. We talked a lot about God's sovereignty and his provision, his providence. Uh, God leads Ruth to glean uh, in, the, in the fields of a man named Boaz. And that's our third main character in the book. Uh, Boaz, we uh, as it turns out, it happens that Boaz uh, is a faithful follower of the Lord. Right, So there's no accident here. God leads Ruth to this man. Uh, Boaz is a faithful follower. He's one of those people who puts his faith in action. He is generous and he is hospitable. He welcomes this... Uh, foreigner, right? This foreigner, this young immigrant widow named Ruth. He welcomes her. And then chapter two kind of ends with this statement that she spends the rest of the harvest working in Boaz's fields. And so he's very generous with her. He lets her do her gleaning, her, her gathering that usually only poor people do. He lets her do it in amongst his own workers. So he's very generous with her. And the chapter ends with this statement that she spent the rest of the harvest doing so. So it wasn't just a one day thing. She goes back every day and she's doing the same thing. And so need number one was taken care of. The Lord took care of their first need. Their second problem, though, is that these, these two women are still alone. They're still alone. Uh, they, they have food to eat now, but they still, their bigger problem is still there. Neither one of them has a husband or a father or sons to take care of them. They are alone in that sense, and, and th- that part's different from our world, In our world, you know, th- that's fine, right? That happens in our world, where, where a woman will be single and, and be perfectly fine, uh, but, but that's not true in the world where Ruth and Naomi live. Uh, the first two chapters really emphasize that. I tried to bring out, especially in chapter two, how vulnerable they are. As women living at that time without a, a man to, to provide covering, to care for them, they're very, very vulnerable. And that's what the Lord's going to provide for them now in chapter 3. So the second big problem they have now, chapter 3, he's going to take care of them in this bigger picture. He's going to provide a husband for Ruth, and through that husband, and it ends up being where the book ends, through that husband he provides an heir. He provides a, a, a descendant for Naomi, because Naomi's big problem is that her family line is dead. Her husband died, her sons died, there were no sons that came from those sons. The family line is dead, but the Lord's going to provide a renewal for it he's going to provide someone to carry on the family name and he does all of this this wonderful thing he does he does it in an in a most unexpected even even surprising kind of way and that's what makes chapter three so so challenging and, and so interesting so, so many people love this book i love this book it's a very interesting chapter and it's precisely because of how god works in this chapter uh, god is going to provide for these two women but he doesn't make it easy He doesn't, it's not all straightforward and and easy. Instead, he works through the twists and turns of of an ambiguous nighttime meeting. There's an ambiguous nighttime meeting that's going to take place in this chapter. And, And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how the Lord provides for his people. And that's basically a basic lesson of this book. I think it was what we talked about the last time I preached four weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I guess. Uh, The Lord provides for his people, but here's the layer we add today. Sometimes he does it in unexpected ways. He he doesn't always do things the way we think he would or could or should. He, He does things the way he wants to do them. And so we we see that today. I want to approach chapter 3 of Ruth the same way we did chapter 2, which is to say I want to go through it twice. There's so much here, and it's such a rich story. I want to take us through chapter 3 once today, although we're not going to go all the way through the whole chapter. Um, But I want to go through it once, and then we're going to come back next week and build on what we say today. So today, my main goal is to just explain Uh, the most difficult parts of this chapter there's a couple of sticky interpretive issues in Ruth chapter 3 that I want to do my best to, to explain and then um, next week we'll come back and we'll, ha- w- with that as our foundation, we'll know what's going on. Then we can talk about how God wants us to live. So next week's will be more practical than this week's. But I do want, at the very end, I, I want to uh, talk about some lessons. Ruth, There's a whole tradition of reading Ruth, which reads Ruth as a wisdom book. If you actually look at a Hebrew Bible, they actually grouped it with the wisdom books. They put it after Proverbs instead of in with the history books like uh, our English Bibles do. and And... that's a good reminder of there's a lot of wisdom in this little book there's a lot of life wisdom and so when we get to the end I want to take the last few minutes to share three life lessons as we think about living in God's world and thinking about trusting him for his provision so that's what we'll do at the end but we'll spend most of our time uh, trying to understand this ambiguous nighttime visit that Ruth pays to uh, to Boaz so let's look in the text I want to start with this word ambiguous that I keep using, and that's really what I want to explain. Uh, I keep saying this meeting is ambiguous, and and I want to tell you why I use that word, and it comes down to three things. There are three things in this uh, this chapter that that make us go, huh, (laughs) what's going on there? They kind of make us scratch our heads a little bit, and and they're they're just questionable or ambiguous. Let me show you what they are. The first is the plan the actual plan that Naomi comes up with. Uh, this plan is uh, its questionable, and I don't mean sinful. And I, I'm going to underline that even more next week, but I want to say it a few times today. I do not think that Ruth or Naomi or Boaz sins in chapter 3. In fact, one of the lessons of the chapter is that even when you find yourself in crazy kind of circumstances like this, it's possible to hold fast to your integrity and do what's right. We'll talk about that more next week. So there's no sin that's going on in here. Uh, But that said, there is no doubt that Naomi's plan is on the edge of social acceptability. This plan she comes up with, it does not tick the social boxes. Let's let's read a little bit. So first four verses. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So the chapter begins with Naomi's concern. She's concerned for Ruth. Uh, She clearly feels a maternal responsibility for this young woman who's pledged her life to her. Where you go, I will go, Ruth said at the end of chapter one. And and so she feels this maternal uh, need to provide for her. And what she needs is a husband. What Ruth really needs is, is a husband. We've talked about that, why that would be the case. And and this isn't a new concern for Naomi. She was actually worried about this back in chapter one. That's why she told Ruth to go back to, to Moab. Right? You go back to Moab. I don't have any sons for you to marry. You have to go back. And Ruth wouldn't go back. But so now Ruth sees, or excuse me, Naomi sees an opportunity. Okay, I couldn't, I can't provide my own sons for her to marry. But but maybe we've got a chance here, and the the chance comes from this guy Boaz. Because Naomi, and I don't, it's never clear, there's so many questions we're left with in this book, it's not clear if Naomi forgot about Boaz or if she forgot that she had relatives here, but apparently this is the first time it occurs to her that there are people in this community who can function as a kinsman redeemer for her family. And we're going to talk more about kinsmen redeemers in chapter 4, because it, becomes, it takes center place in, in chapter 4, and so we'll, use it to, we'll talk about it more there. But just for our purposes today, what, what, here's what that means. When she says well, he is a redeemer, the, the Hebrew word actually means a kinsman redeemer. You might be looking at a translation that spells it out that way. Uh, in their culture, uh, certain relatives would be legally qualified to carry on the family name. So in a case like this, Naomi's husband Elimelech is dead. His sons are dead. Who's going to carry on the name and the property rights of Elimelech's family? Who's going to do that? Well, a kinsman redeemer can do that, and there are certain conditions under which he has to do it. And there's a kind of a ranked order on who would be eligible. But but they had a they had a system whereby uh, he could they could marry into his family, but then. He, the first especially usually it was the first child he would have would then become the the heir of of the original family's uh, property and and name and so on and so that 's what a kinsman redeemer would do and so Naomi maybe 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 she 's thought about herself, but she 's never thought that it would work for Ruth, but she realizes okay, so she can 't have children she 's apparently too old she 's past that age, but Ruth can, and since Ruth had married into the family, if Boaz will marry Ruth then We'll take care of both boxes. Ruth will have a husband to protect her, and they'll have children to carry on the family of Elimelech. And so that's that's kind of what's what's going on there in her head. That's what the, the, the cultural background is going on. And so she comes up with this plan, and this is the part where it, where, that's out there. She comes up with a plan in which Ruth is going to go to Boaz and propose marriage to him. And you and I kind of go, oh, That's cool, she's a liberated woman, why not? No, it doesn't work that way in their culture. Uh, In their culture, that is a shockingly forward thing to do. Uh, It's even inappropriate to do. Uh, The way marriages work in that culture is that they are arranged by the family by the father if he's still alive and of course Elimelech is dead and so uh, if there were sons to do it they would do it but there's no sons either so, so really Naomi should do it and if for some reason Naomi couldn't do it you would get a third party you'd get a matchmaker you'd get a close friend or a, a maybe one of the elders of the community you'd get somebody else to approach Boaz and introduce this idea of him being a kinsman redeemer for Ruth that's the way to do this that's the right way to do this that is not what Naomi is, is proposing here. She proposes that Ruth goes to Boaz and she proposes marriage. Uh, again, I, I, don't know if, I don't know how to help us understand how, how unusual that is in, in our culture, and that is, or in their culture, and that is what she's doing. I'll show you a clue or two here in just a moment. She's, uh, she's not going to ask him out for coffee. She is going to ask him to marry her that's what's going on here. And so we, we, we clock that first detail. We look at the, the basic uh, details of this plan and we say, why? Why does Naomi do that? Why doesn't she go to Boaz herself like she very well could have done? Why doesn't she get a matchmaker, some third party? Why, why, why? And the text doesn't tell us. <laughs> uh, the only answer I can give you is we don't know. All I have is what the text says, which is that uh, Naomi, under the providence of God, Naomi sends Ruth directly to Boaz to propose marriage herself. And so we're already, we haven't even gotten to the other stuff yet, and we're already kind of scratching our heads saying, why? Why? That's What an ambiguous, strange thing to do. Uh, good girls in that culture, good uh, women, don't go around asking guys to marry them like Ruth is going to do. That's number one. The second thing that makes this uh, scenario so ambiguous is, is the location, the location. And the location for everything that's going to take place here is the threshing floor at night. So Ruth agrees to the plan. She gets all dressed up, just like Naomi suggests. She, she takes a bath, she cleans herself, uh, which is not an everyday thing, right? We're all like, okay, big deal, take a bath. You know, we shower daily, and uh, this is an unusual thing. Water's scarce, uh, it is not an everyday thing. And it's not just the, the bath, it's, it's the, she puts on her best perfume, she puts on her best clothes. This is one of the clues that we know this is, this is a wedding proposal ruth is presented or presents herself to boaz as a bride i mean it's it's subtle but i think it's there she presents herself as a bride that's that's when women get that dressed up especially a common woman like ruth is Uh, if you're you know rich if you're like a king's wife or something it would be more common but but for a woman like her it's a very rare thing and your wedding would be one of the times you would and so, so she's, she, she gets dressed up in her very, very best. Dressed up like she's going to a wedding. Boaz, meanwhile, let's talk about Boaz, where we find him in this whole thing. He's doing his work. He's busy with the harvest, and it does appear to be the end of the harvest season. The text doesn't dwell on it, but some time seems to pass from that initial encounter we read about in chapter 2, um, probably several weeks, maybe even up to a couple of months, because that's really just guesswork based on how long we know the harvest would have taken. Uh, but but uh, some weeks have gone by. All the, the crops have been brought in, and there's always a little bit of a time sensitivity to that, right? We know that. You've got to get it in while you can. And now that it's all gathered in, now they're going to process it. And so they're going to process it, and that's where this threshing stuff comes in. The threshing was done at a, a public threshing floor. So it wasn't that each farmer had his own threshing floor. It was a shared community space where it would be done. I was, I was wondering if it's a little bit like a grain elevator, right? Like you, every, everybody brings their stuff to one of the grain elevators, um, and it's probably not a perfect an, analog, but, but they, would, they would all the different farmers and field owners would come to a common place where they would do the threshing, the processing of their of their crop and it was a festive time i think to appreciate this text you also have to know it's a festive time there's a celebration it worked right and it's no guarantee in any culture certainly in theirs it was no guarantee there'd be a harvest and there was so it's a celebration god's given us the crops now we're going to process them and so that's what the threshing floor is for Uh, a lot of folks would know this but just to make sure we're all on the same page what are they going to do uh, they're going to take the the so basically so far they've only kind of done a raw sort of a, a harvest, but all that grain, the barley and the weed is still all attached. In this case, it's barley he's focusing on. The barley is still attached to the stalks, and and so they're, what they're going to do is they're going to take that stuff and they're going to um, they're going to. Apply force to it. And a lot of times that was uh, having animals trample it, but maybe people would trample on it, but animals would be more effective uh, because they're heavier. And what you're doing is you're crushing it and you're separating the grain, the edible part, from all the stuff we don't want to eat. And it has other uses, but we don't want to eat it. And so that's what the threshing is. And this threshing was the key thing you needed first, you had to apply the force, and so there was actually kind of ground that was specially prepared over the years to handle this. And the other thing you needed was wind. And so a lot of times these would be located outside of the, of the city or the village, not way outside, but outside, uh, up on a hill or something, so that you'd be getting the, the breezes. And then the other piece that's helpful is that a lot of times it was evening. That's when you would get the strongest breezes, so, which is why that, that just helps us fill in all these details. So um, they're out at the, th- the common threshing floor, they're getting the grain crushed, and they would take these uh, winnowing hooks, or winnowing forks, excuse me, And they would, um, and there's variety, but the basic is you'd you'd throw this up in the air, you just give it a toss, and the wind carries away the light stuff, and the the grain falls back down to the ground. You do that enough times, and eventually you've separated the wheat from the chaff, the barley from the chaff. And so that's what they're doing. Is you picture these men working? uh, Boaz is there. I'm sure he's doing some of the work himself, but he's also got his crew. They're all doing the work. And as I said before, it's a party. That's the other thing. the the, the, the men are all working, and then they they work into the evening as long as they can while there's still light and the winds are good. And then a lot of times they would hang out together because this would take more than one day, and so there'd be uh, they'd hang out together. They would drink, they would eat, they would enjoy themselves. That's all part of that joy, joy of the harvest you read about in so many passages in the Bible. Uh, that, by the way, is what you get in verse seven, right? So I tell you all that to explain some of these details. Uh, Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. Uh, that doesn't mean he got drunk. Don't picture him intoxicated. He's, there's nothing to make us think that he got, he got drunk. It's just, he, just, he was just enjoying himself, right? Everybody's enjoying themselves. It's the harvest. So, so he was part of the party. And a lot of times, because it was outside, because there was so much emphasis on getting the work done, a lot of times the men would sleep there. And so the men would stay overnight. So you work. You eat dinner, the sun goes down, you eat dinner, you, su- you, um, you celebrate, everybody has a good time, we go to sleep, we wake up, the next morning we get right back to work. And so a lot of times the men would stay there. And that is what's going on in this. So there you have it, the threshing floor, men sleeping at night after partying. <laughs> That's where Ruth goes. That's where Naomi sends Ruth. And this is the part where it gets ambiguous. See, as a general rule, women do not go to the threshing floor. Women don't go to the threshing floor. This part of the harvest, yeah, they were involved in chapter 2, but when we got to this part of the harvest, it's kind of a no-girls-allowed club. They, they're just not supposed to be there, especially at night. Right? Especially at night when all the men are sleeping there. There was only one exception. There was one exception, the exception was prostitutes. Remember, this is the time of the judges right? Where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, and so not everybody in Israel was living like a faithful Israelite. And so uh, if, if you did find women at the threshing floor uh, at night, uh, there's a pretty good chance that woman is, is, is a prostitute. That's why uh, she's there. You actually see testimony about this in scripture. Hosea talks about it. Hosea is a little later in terms of time, but it, it gives us a A picture of how this worked. Hosea 9:1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, you've been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Uh, It was common enough that Hosea actually uses it as as an example of one of the, the sins of Israel: prostitution associated with the threshing floor. That helps you understand Boaz's reaction. All right, that helps you understand why when Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and there's a woman at his feet, why he responds the way he is. He does. All right, what does it say in verse 9? Who are you? Who are you, he says. Make sure when you listen to that in your mind's, mind's, uh, mind's ear, you, you hear the dismay. Right? This isn't kind of, a, oh, who are you? This is, ah, who are you? Because he, it's a woman, it's a woman. I mean, can you imagine? You're kind of like, what did I do? What happened? Who is, who is this woman at my feet? Because he knows, he knows the only kind of woman who's found at the threshing floor at night. And it's not the kind of woman Boaz, a righteous man, likes to spend time with. And so again, we look at that. Those details I just gave you. We look at that and we say, Naomi, why? Why? Why does Naomi send Ruth to the threshing floor at night? Why not the middle of the day? And we could speculate, we could say, well, you know, she was trying to keep it a secret. Or, I mean, we could, we could come up with ideas. I'll leave that to the historical fiction writers. But, but as far as what the text gives me, it doesn't tell me. Right? Why, middle of the, why middle of the night? Why not just go to his house? We don't know. We're not told. Right? That, be, all we have is the fact. Ruth approaches Boaz at this time and in this place that's pretty inappropriate in their culture. And then the third thing that makes this scenario ambiguous for us is the the actual meeting, the meeting itself. And what I mean is the fact that Ruth and Boaz are alone. They're alone when they have this meeting. Uh, And that brings us to what's probably the trickiest part of the whole book. In fact, if I were to make a list of uh, top ten difficult issues in the Old Testament, difficult interpretation issues, I'd probably put this one on the list. It'd be in there in the top ten. And what I mean is the whole uncover the feet thing. Where Where Naomi tells uh, Ruth in verse four, go and uncover the feet of Boaz, verse seven, she did. Uh, Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet and lay down at his feet, it says, and And the question is, what is going on with that? What does that mean? All right. Some of you have probably heard the idea that this is is an overtly sexual act. You've probably, maybe you've run into commentaries or studies or whatever where where it has been said that this is is something sexual that she does. The reason they say that is that the the Hebrew word feet is sometimes used as a euphemism uh, for for the male reproductive organs. So a euphemism is kind of a polite way to say something that's not so polite. And so um, there are instances. I could give you examples from the Old Testament. There's not a lot of them, but there's a couple of them where feet is used, and it doesn't mean feet. It means uh, a man's. uh, I think it could also be used for women, but usually it's it's a man's uh, private parts. We would say. And so because of that association, in some parts of Scripture, uh, there are interpreters who say that's what's happening here. So Ruth comes, she uncovers his feet, but it's not his feet. It's something rather more personal. I do not buy that interpretation. Uh, I don't agree with that interpretation. I do not think that that's what Ruth does. Uh, the main reason I say that has to do with what comes immediately following. right? If, if that's what Ruth had done, if she had come and done something, something as, as, sexu- as overtly sexual as that, it's very hard to imagine Boaz, as he's presented to us, saying, oh, what a, what a righteous woman you are. Right? Oh, what a, what a noble woman of character you are for doing this to me. There, there's no precedent in Scripture for a, a noble, godly woman doing that kind of thing to a man she's not married to. None at all. And so instead, so okay, so if it's not something sexual, what is it? I would suggest to you that when Ruth uncovers his feet, it's exactly what it means. She uncovers his feet. Right, she, 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 we should take it literally in this case. Just because it's used euphemistically in a couple of other passages, doesn't mean that's how it's being used here. She uncovered his feet. How would they sleep? Uh, he's, he doesn't have his, his usual bed. Right, he's curled up in a pile of grain. What's he using as a blanket? His coat. He's you know the, these big flowing cloaks you often see when uh, I mean, you look at like kind of big paintings and stuff like that from bible times Uh, we know they would use their cloak their cloak would double as a blanket so but it's not a great big queen-sized blanket or whatever you have in your home this is uh it's a coat right so he's got his coat pulled up around him she comes up while he's sleeping she's gonna creep up on him while he's asleep and she's going to uncover his feet practically what's the effect it's gonna wake him up Right? It's a quiet way to wake him up. She doesn't have to shake him. She doesn't have to say his name. It's going to wake him up eventually. Why? Because he's going to get cold. Right? He's going to get, he's going to, and, and that's exactly what happens. He'll, he, he gets cold because his feet are uncovered. He went to bed, he covered it, but now his feet are uncovered. There's another significance to the feet because then you say, well, why does she lie down at his feet? Maybe she should uncover his feet and then go sit 10 feet away. Why does she lie down at his feet And I think the answer to this one is that this is the the position of supplication. If you look in scripture, there are plenty of examples where you you present yourself at someone's feet to make a humble, respectful request. And so she is putting herself at his feet so that when he does wake up, she can make her request. She can ask him to cover her. We'll talk about that next week, to to cover her with, uh, with marriage. Uh, one example is found in 2 Kings. You could look it up. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 27. We have a woman who presents herself to a prophet. She falls at his feet because she has a request to make. And so that's why his feet. It's not sexual. She's not making a pass at him. Uh, she's she's uh, putting herself in position to wake him up and then make her request. But it's still ambiguous. It's still ambiguous, right? I mean, come on. I mean, just, just look at the details. Uh, for one thing, they're alone. Right? Verse 7 says he went off to the end. The text tells us they're by themselves. He didn't sleep in with a bunch of other guys. He went off by himself to the end of the heap of grain. So there's others around, but as far as this meeting, it's the two of them alone there off in the corner. It's dark, so they're alone. It's dark. How do I know it's dark? He doesn't recognize her. Right, He knows her. We know he knows her from chapter 2. Right, He's had multiple conversations with this woman. He knows her, and yet he doesn't recognize her. Why? Because it's dark. Right? So they're alone, it's dark, and she's lying down. She's lying down next to where he's lying down. And so you have a man and a woman who are not married to each other lying down alone in the dark. I'm sorry, but that's a gray area in just about every culture. Even ours, right? Even in our pretty permissive culture, that'll, that'll get the tongues wagging, right? Guy, you know, in a dorm room or something like that. Oh, did you hear where she slept last night? I mean, even in our culture, that's going to make people raise their eyebrows. And, and so it's, it's ambiguous. Again, I want to stress, nobody's sinning. They're not going to sin. But, boy, is it a tough situation. Just like we find ourselves in tough situations. I want to I think through that next week. Sometimes we through no fault of our own or sometimes it is through our own fault but we end up in situations that we're like what am i going to do and we'll we'll talk about that next week one more i know we're going to go a little long today but if you need more proof uh of of the ambiguity of this whole thing uh, look what boaz does in the morning I, I actually we didn't read it i asked bill to stop at verse 13 but if you read verse 14 uh, boaz is going to send her away before the sun comes up and he gives the specific reason why don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor so he sends her away because he doesn't want anybody to know she was there why because she shouldn't have been there and so that detail in verse 14 also tells us that that this whole thing is it's suspect it's questionable it's a it's a it's a a sticky ambiguous situation well next week i'm going to argue they do the right thing anyway and like I say, we often find ourselves in positions like that, where it's not all black and white, and they, they do the right thing anyway. We're going to talk about how you do that. But, but there's, I don't think we can, I think we are whitewashing the text if we try to deny that there are shades of gray. There are some shades of gray here in, in Ruth chapter 3. Well, like I say, I do want to resolve at least some of the tension next week, but we'll have to uh, cliffhanger. We'll have to wait till we come back next week. Uh, before I close, though, I do have these three lessons, and I was just uh, one of my own convictions about sermons is that if I if I send us away without some stuff to chew on in terms of application, I haven't really done my job. And so I, I spent some more time at the uh, during my week this week just thinking, like, what what does this tell us though about our lives? And and so I'd actually like to offer you three lessons. Uh, just kind of wisdom lessons about the life we live, the lives we live today. And I hope some of this is helpful for people. So here are three life lessons from what we've talked about so far in chapter three. Number one, sometimes life is messy (laughs) and that's okay. That's okay. This is a messy text. I think we see that here. Uh, And actually, you could make the point that that's kind of true for the whole book, right? Chapters one and two as well, where so much suffering and and loss is, is experienced. But even just this text, again, there were easier ways to do this. I wish I could ask her, Naomi, what were you thinking? Maybe in eternity somewhere we could ask her, what were you thinking? There were easier ways to do this. She could have gone herself. She could have chose a less risky time. She could have done it at a different place. Why she didn't, we don't know. All we know is that this is the plan she came up with. It's a messy plan. It's going to work, but it's a messy plan. I know this isn't an issue for everybody. Maybe this is just me and my own issues, but some of us like things to be neat and tidy. We like things to be neat and tidy. We want to know all of God's will before we start to move forward. We want to have all the ducks in a row before we say march, right? We want everything. We want to know for sure that that relationship's going to work before we ask that person out. We want to know for sure that this business risk will pay off. We want to know for sure that the treatment will work. We want to know for sure that the extra work the boss has asked us to put in, we want to know for sure that he's going to reward us for it and that it'll it'll, uh, make a difference in the end. We want to know for sure. And the world doesn't work that way. It sure doesn't work that way. And as we meditate on the sovereignty of God in all of this, that's okay. Right? Remember that big theme in this book, God is sovereign. And because he is, because he is, we can trust him. Jesus can and does work in and through even the messiness of our lives. God's not thrown off balance every time you and I make a bad choice or make a mistake. Which leads right into the second lesson lesson number two is that the lord works through our actions even the imperfect ones even the sinful ones Although i just want to say the imperfect ones he works through them uh, I've, I've really tried to emphasize ruth and naomi are not sinning and i don't think that they are but it's kind of out there right this whole thing is, is kind of out there let me just put if, if, if you're still not convinced let me just ask you if you were trying to match up your daughter And I know we don't do that in our culture. But if you were trying to match your daughter to help her find a husband, would you do it this way? Would you send her... No, of course you wouldn't do that. And more importantly, far more importantly, neither would they. In their traditional culture especially, they would not... Most people living at that time would not do what Naomi comes up with and what Ruth executes here. And so again, you have this messy, ambiguous meaning. But what's the lesson? The Lord uses it. These become the descendants of King David or the progenitors of King David. The Lord uses it. He works through his plan. He works through her plan. His plan is to work through her plan, even though it wasn't a perfect plan. And I think that encourages me to remember that he does the same thing for us. Think over your own lives, your own experiences. I don't recommend doing this a lot, but ask yourself, if you could go back and do it again, would you make all the same decisions that you made? All right, if you could go back, is, is there anything you would do differently than from what you actually did? Any choices you look at now and you're like, man, what was I thinking? What was 28-year-old me thinking? What was 14-year-old me thinking? You know, you, there, is there anything like that in your own life? And yet, the Lord is still working in your life, isn't he? Isn't he still working in you and through you? And that's what sovereignty means. Or it's one of the things sovereignty means. The Lord's will... For our lives is not shipwrecked on the rocky shores of our poor choices. It's not. And that leads to the third lesson, we i all end uh, Life lesson number three is that we should therefore not let the ambiguity of life paralyze action. Don't let ambiguity paralyze action. Imagine if Ruth had listened to Naomi's plan on the first four, four verses and then said, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. And then she went off and she prayed about it for days. Maybe weeks. And she really just kind of pondered. She agonized. over, Oh, I don't know. Is this plan the right thing to do? And it's kind of inappropriate. I know we wouldn't do it that way back in Moab. And you know maybe, maybe the risk of being rejected is too great. What if Boaz says no? What if he laughs at me? Uh, what if somebody else sees me? What if they think I'm a prostitute? What if, you know, what if I lose track of which man? It is dark. What if I go up to Boaz, but it's not really Boaz. It's this other guy, and that's going to be so humiliating. And, and she just starts running through all the, and she spends days and weeks thinking through all those different, different possibilities. If Ruth did that, I can't say for sure, but I would guess we wouldn't be reading her story today. God would have had to move on and find uh, someone else to work through. But that's not what Ruth did. That's not the story we love so much. What we have, what we actually have is verse 5. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. All that you say, I will do. And, and off she went. And, and off it goes. Now, please do not get me wrong. Don't mishear me. I am not saying we shouldn't pray. Of course we should pray. It's so important. It's such an important part of the Christian life. To listen. To stop before we dive into things. To listen to the Lord. To seek His guidance. To ask. Uh, but the danger... I think the danger for some of us is that sometimes we let prayerfulness turn into paralysis. Sometimes, and again, I think we can make the other mistake too, but but sometimes we we can use, oh, let me pray about it as an excuse for inaction. And our faith becomes frozen just because we don't have, like I said in the first point, all of our ducks in a row. But as we think about sovereignty, this is part of of the freedom we have under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Because we trust him to lead us and guide us, we don't have to be paralyzed by life's uncertainty. And again, don't be reckless. Don't put God to the test with foolish risks. Do the research, get advice. All of that stuff is important. Spend the time in prayer, absolutely. But then once we've done those things it falls to us to step out in faith, right? When we go back to Hebrews in the fall, we'll, we'll you know, we we'll spend a lot of time in Hebrews 11, faith, right? We step out in faith. You got to start moving sometimes in a direction. And, and if we're going the wrong way, the Lord will redirect us. That's part of sovereignty. And if we're not, if we're going the right way, he'll, he'll lead us forward. He'll lead us forward as we trust in him. Would you pray with me, please? Let's close. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for, uh, for this passage. Uh, it is a beloved book for so many of us. We love uh, the, the vividness and the reality, even the, the holy grittiness of this story. And uh, there's just so much to love here. Thank you for how it, it encourages us, challenges us, gives us ways to think about our own lives. I pray for myself and every one of us here that you would help us to think biblically about our lives, including, uh, including a book like Ruth, as we see how this man and this woman uh, lived out their lives uh, as best they could under your care, your sovereignty, your, your providence for them. Help us to trust in you, to do what's right, and, uh, and to keep moving forward with Jesus. We ask all
1: this in the great name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.